want you to think about what you would say if I asked you, what is, what is it that makes it difficult to, to be a Christian? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've committed your life to him, you've probably noticed that it's not the easiest thing in the world to do if you have committed to do it all out. And, and I, I want to say that, just sort of as a side note, there, there may not be, which I think would be typical of any church in America, there may not be a large majority of the people in here who have committed themselves all out. And so some folks may have said, well, this thing isn't that hard. The Scripture makes it clear that if you commit yourself completely to Jesus Christ, there are times of great joy and times of great struggle. And so if you've not experienced both sides of that, then give yourself completely to Jesus Christ today. We can close in prayer and say amen and go home, and we'd all be better off. But I want to know, what would it be that you'd say, you know, if I think about it, this is what makes it really tough, maybe for me to go all out. Or, or since I have committed myself completely to him, and I've experienced this, this makes it tough. You know, I think back just over my my life as a Christian and, and uh, I was privileged to come to know the Lord at an early age. I was eight years old. And, and since then, and, and so for, for a, a little while since then, I have, I have seen sort of the ups and downs of what it's like to be a Christian and to, to live in the world as, as a follower of Jesus. I had the opportunity, as many of you well know, to play high school and college baseball and experience what life is like being the only Christian on the team. The only one, uh, being the only person um, who who had some inkling that this is the life I ought to live amongst a bunch of guys who really didn't care. I, I, I know I've experienced that it's difficult. Sometimes there are pressures from outside that, that you just sort of have trouble fighting. Or, or there, there are things that, that, that you realize in those that I'm, I'm alone. And there's nobody pulling on my side of the rope except me. And I remember when I was playing and, and, and then later coaching baseball that the guys that I, that I played for and then later coached with, they, it seemed like they wanted nothing more than to either catch me doing something wrong or get me to do something wrong. And then they would catch me doing it. You know, that was the way that it would go. And, and I just remember it was just, I don't know, like, what, what difference does it make to you whether I say that or this or whatever? But that, that was their goal, and so it was hard. And maybe you've experienced those different things. You, you've been in scenarios and situations where you, you realize, you know, this thing is not easy. But I, I think of probably the, the things that, have, that are coming to mind right now. There's one that's easy to miss. And I want to say this, that I think that the thing that makes it so great to be an American can also make it, very difficult to be a devoted follower of Jesus. The thing that makes it so great to be an American can also make it very difficult to be a devoted follower of Jesus. I love our country, and I would not want to be in any other place. You with me on that? I would not want to be anywhere else. I am thankful, and I sometimes forget to thank God for just simply where I was born. You know, I had no control of that. Neither did you. I can take no pride in the fact that, look at me, I'm an American. God simply blessed me with the opportunity to grow up in this country, and I'm thankful for that. And at the same time, I think there is something about being an American, and it's, it's a great thing about being an American, that can make it very difficult to be a devoted follower of Jesus. 
And the thing that I'm talking about is known and, and widely defined and, and sort of defined differently as the American dream. Some of you, if I were to ask you, what is the American dream? You, you would come up with a very real good definition. The best thing I can come up with is that the American dream is that each generation will have it better than the last. That's, that's the best I can come up with. That, that you can basically in America do whatever you want to do. If you set your mind to it and you go after it. And don't we all love those stories? I mean, absolutely love them. Those people, those, those families, those individuals, whoever it may be, that seemingly rise from nothing. They have nothing. Dirt, poor, to being at the top of the world. We love those stories. I mean, they're inspiring to us. And, it, and, and I, 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 we, could, we could sit here and we probably all know somebody like that. And we could tell story after story. These folks overcame all of these. The odds were against them. And yet they persevered. They kept going. They, they kept working hard. And, and they rose to the top. And, and what we like a lot of times are those stories. And at the same time, I think what we miss is that a lot of times what that creates is this self-made mindset in America that I can do it. And look what I have done and look what I have accomplished. Now, before you brand me as unpatriotic, that's not the case. Because I am all for let's have as much success in our lives as we can possibly have. Let's work hard and let's do whatever we can. Let's not be lazy as people. Let's do the best that we can, the full extent of our abilities. And yet at the same time, there is, and I think you would agree, a very real sense and a very real danger that we can buy into this image that I am self-made and look what I have done. And we can get convinced that what we have accomplished and accumulated is simply for us to enjoy. And look at the rewards. And this is mine. And I've earned all of this. And and I say all that because I think that what makes it great about being an American, that you can basically rise from nothing. You can accomplish things in America that you cannot accomplish in any other country in the world. Incredible. What a great place we live. And yet at the same time, if we're not careful, that self-made mindset can keep, it, keep us from being the people God wants us to be. The scripture we're going to look at today, I think, has the power to change your life and to change my life. Because I think if we take it to heart and apply it, then we have to change. We cannot walk away different. You know, there are some scriptures you look at and you say, oh, okay, well, that's all right. It kind of alters maybe a little bit of what you've thought. Or this, this principle today that we'll look at, I think, is, is, is earth-shattering, but very simple. It's not going to be something real, real deep, Okay. It's not going to be anything that you walk away and have to really ponder for a long time and try to figure out, what's he talking about? He's so intelligent. You realize that's not the truth anyway. I don't have anything real deep to say. And so we're just going to look at the scripture and try to find what is it that God would have us do. And I think in that, you'll still be a great American. I think in that, you can still pursue success. And so I'm not against America, not against the American dream. I love our country. But I think we have to be aware of sometimes the dangers that subtle in our mind that can shift us from, from being completely devoted followers of Jesus. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to look with me in, in this, the passage of Scripture that we've been dealing with over the last several weeks in Acts chapter 2. And what we've been going for is to try to figure out what is it that we as a church, we as Christian people can apply that the early church knew and did and applied 
And how can we become the unstoppable force that Jesus said that the biblical church would be? We want to be a part of that. We don't want to merely exist. We don't want to just take up space and breathe air and hold hands and sing kumbaya until Jesus comes back. That's not what we want to do. It's easy to do that, but we know there's something inside of us that says we want to make some sort of impact. We want God to use us, this church, in an incredible way that we can't even explain and only God can take credit for. And so we've been looking at that over the last several weeks. What is it that a biblical church is and does? And so we get to this one today. And if you want to follow along, you can on the back of your bulletin. You can kind of get there and you maybe like filling in blanks. You can do that sort of thing. I want us to look at at a passage from Acts chapter 2 and then a parallel passage from Acts chapter 4. And so let's look first at Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 45. You'll see these verses on the screen, or you can follow along uh, there in your own Bible. Verse 44 says, Now all the believers were together and had everything in common. So they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Now look at chapter 4, verse 32. Parallel passage, basically saying the same thing. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own. Don't miss that. But instead, they held everything in common. Now look at verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them, because all who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. Then this was distributed to each person as anyone had a need. The context of all this, and, and, and when you study the, the Scripture, when you read the Bible, when you try to figure out what on earth is this saying, and there are times that you probably do that. You think, I just read that, but I have no clue what that means. The context of what's around it, what happens before, what happens after, why was this written at this time? Why was this included in the story? All of that is sort of known as the, the general term context. So when you read something like this, this is a drastic way of life. This isn't something we say, oh, okay, well, they sort of got together and they, they had a yard sale and they gave the proceeds to these people who didn't have anything. It was an incredible story. That's not the story. They didn't have a yard sale. They sold everything. Sold it all. They brought it to the, to the apostles. So in our, in our time, it would be you go home, you liquidate everything you have. I'm talking bank accounts, houses, cars, retirement accounts, the whole deal. Okay? This is, this is not a yard sale. This is big time. And, and then tomorrow, you do it tomorrow. You don't, you don't wait. You try to do what you can today. You, you, tomorrow, you bring all that money to the church. And you say, here you go. Who's, who has a need? And, and go meet it. And you walk away and you have nothing. And, and you, you are trusting then, and this is in this time, that that will then be done for you as well. So understand this is not a yard sale. This is not, uh, you know, a lemonade stand with a couple of young kids and they're going to donate the proceeds. It is everything. It's a drastic way of life. And so when we see that, we think, well, good grief. Is that what we're supposed to do? That's kind of drastic, isn't it? I mean, that's odd. And it really is. So we have to look at the context. What led up to this point? What happens afterward to sort of make sense of why on earth is this included? Why did they do this? 
understand, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on explaining what led up and what happens after, but understand this. That this is right after, as we, as we have looked at over the past several weeks, this is right after Peter gives this incredible sermon. And, and you talk about powerful sermons and convicting messages. If, if ever I step on your toes, understand what Peter did. And you can say, oh, okay, well, he's not that bad. Peter stands in front of all the Jews. And he says, you know what? That Messiah you've been looking for for the last however many hundred thousand years, he came and you killed him. You're Messiah. Not, not just you kind of out there. You killed him. You would think that at that point, stepping on their toes just a tad, that many people would leave the church. They say, this guy, he's just got his own agenda. He's trying to make us feel bad for something that, you know, that, you know what about him? What, didn't his sin do something? 3,000 people were pierced, it says, to the heart. They say, what do we need to do? We were wrong. 3,000 people get saved on the spot and join the church. Now, I'm not going to try intentionally to come in and start throwing haymakers at you and stepping on all of your toes. But understand that if I ever do, just remember that. I haven't said that you killed Jesus, okay? So, Peter preaches this incredible sermon. 3,000 people join the church, and they were all Jewish people converting to Christianity. And as a result, some of them no longer had the employment that they had before. They lost their jobs because of their conversion to Christianity, which creates a tremendous need. Imagine 3,000 people, many of whom have no way to sustain or provide for themselves anymore, coming into our church on one day. Number one, we got nowhere to put them. Number two, they got no jobs. Number three, how are we going to pay for all that stuff? Imagine what they're going through. And so spontaneously, out of the prompting of the Holy Spirit, these people began to sell everything they could to provide for those folks who had devoted themselves to Jesus and in the process lost everything. So that's the context that we have. The Bible gives us two different ways to look at Scripture often. One is prescriptive. You go to the doctor, got a prescription. There's orders on what you're to do, what you are to take, how many times, uh, how, how long, and so on. That's a prescription. Go do this, and if you do that, then odds are this will happen, i.e., you will get well. So the Bible gives us certain prescriptive things. Like in Matthew 22, when the, when the, the Pharisees, uh, they, they send somebody to go test Jesus, and, and the guy walks up to him and says, Teacher, who, can you tell me what's the greatest commandment? And what does Jesus say? Greatest commandment is what? Love. God, with everything that you are, your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your body, everything that you are. And then he says, he goes one step further. You've got to love Jesus. He goes one step further. You want the greatest one? Yeah, I'll give you that. I'll give you the second one, too. Keep your mouth shut. You know, that's what Jesus is telling him. And he says, the second is this, love what? Your neighbor as yourself. That is prescriptive. We can take that directly from Matthew 22 and know, yes, we should love God with everything we are. And we should love our neighbor as ourselves. It's a command. It's not hard. You don't have to read into that very much at all. You just sort of, okay, well, that's what I need to do. There are other things in the Bible that are not prescriptive, but descriptive. And the, these stories, these narratives in the Bible, you look at some of the Old Testament stuff, and you just think, what in the world am I supposed to do because of that? You ever been there? I mean, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm not as spiritual as you are, and you read the Bible, and God's just like, well, you know. Sometimes I look and I think, God, what's that in there for? You know, what am I supposed to do because of that? I look at Acts chapter 2, the verses we read. I look at Acts chapter 4, the verses we read. I say, God, what are we supposed to do with that? It's descriptive. It's telling us what they did. It's giving us a picture. 
And so as we look at this, today we are not going to walk away from it. You can breathe in just a second. With the mandate to go sell everything you got. I'll keep listening now. Okay, all right, I'm not going to leave you. That's not going to be the mandate. The mandate is not going to be go and liquidate all of your assets and bring them here tomorrow to the church, and we're going to start a, com- uh, you know, a commune, and we're all going to sort of live together, and we'll give you a Sunday school class where we kind of bunk up in, and you can yell all that. That's not what we're going for. Right? So you can, you can breathe. We're looking for the descriptive part. What is it about them that, that, that was the underlying principle? What was it about them that they lived by, that we can pull and live by that as well. So understand, this is not prescriptive, and we know this because in chapter 5, we see that this sort of activity was voluntary. This was not a rule in their church. This was not something that the apostles said, go and do all of this. It simply says they went and did it all. You with me? You see the difference? Okay. Also, the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts was the only church that did it. The only one. So that means that even though it's a good thing that they did, it was not mandated by the apostles. So it's not prescriptive. So, again, rest easy. I'm not, if I stood here today and told you, now this is what the, the early church did, so this is what we need to do. I'm way off base, way off base. But if we can look at what did they live by, what was the principle that guided them, then I think we can we can move forward. So, uh the, the underlying principle that they live by, um, that, that they, I think, can teach us today is this, and, and write this down. I am a manager, not an owner. I am a manager, not an owner. I am a manager, not an owner. Anytime that the Lord leads we talk about possessions or stuff or money. We'll do a whole series on how we should, as a result of what God has said, how we should handle our money. We'll do a whole series on that in January. You know the underlying principle of all of that? The way that we have to view our stuff and our money and everything we have is I am a manager and I'm an owner. And for some of us, that is absolutely, completely different than the way we live. Why? Because as I said, the great thing about being an American can sometimes make it difficult to be a devoted follower of Jesus. Because everything in our country teaches you that you are what? The owner. Not the manager. Somebody else manages that. You own it. It's yours. It's mine. It's my stuff. And we like our stuff. And you can have your stuff and I'll have my stuff and that's okay. But but understanding God's economy, he is the owner. In fact, in Psalm chapter 24, when I ask you to turn there, the psalmist writes in verse 1 of Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And we have a whole lot of room for our ownership of much. The earth, I didn't create it, you didn't create it, can't claim ownership of that, okay, is the Lord's and everything in it. Sort of weeds us out a little bit. We are simply managers. Again, Verse 32 of Acts chapter 4 says this. No one said that any of his possessions was his own. Why? Not because they belonged to another human, but simply because they understood, I'm the manager. Not the owner, it belongs to God. And so this is obviously radically different from mainstream thought. But imagine how different our lives would be if we operated according to this principle. In Ecclesiastes.
Ecclesiastes over and over, the, the writer, and some believe it's Solomon, others believe it's, it's an anonymous writer, basically draws the point that the more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more you have, the more you have to lose. The harder you work to get all the stuff you want, the more disappointed you're going to be when you don't get all the stuff that you want. It, all of that, it's just sort of, you know what, God is the owner. I'm just the manager. Imagine if you were set free from all that junk. All those pursuits that just keep you going and keep you in debt and keep you putting more and more and more and more on credit cards and so on. Not that anybody in here has run up tremendous credit card debt. Nobody, but the average American has about $8,000 in credit cards. So, you know what? Some of you are above average. You can take that away. I don't have $8,000, I have $10,000. I'm above average. Way to go. You're very good. You're above average. Some of you are way below average. Now you're really happy about being below average, you know? But, you know, the truth is this. If we lived according to this principle, I think we would be radically different. And it is not. Understand, we'll look at some of these results. It's not a downer. It's an exciting way to live. It sets you free, and you are used by God in ways you probably never imagined. And so the effects of living like this are seen in the results. And I want to run through these real quick. Leave us with a challenge, and then we'll get out of here. The incredible results. First thing is this, priorities. Priorities, think about it. If you come to the point where you agree and commit to the fact, I am a manager, not an owner. As a result of that, you realize who owns it, it's God. You can align your life with his priorities. And how many of us in here have said, you know, I just think my priorities are a little bit out of whack. You know what? Or somebody has come to you and said, you really ought to realign stuff. Or maybe it's been your kids or your spouse or friend, and they just call attention to the fact that, you know, you're working a little too much, or these things are just not, how many of you look back on your life now, and you say, I wish I had done this, I wish I had spent more time doing this, instead of, imagine if we get this idea and align our priorities with it, we would realize and then operate by the principle I think that Jesus did, and that's that people matter more than things. Was it that hard? Think about little kids. I have three that live in my home. One in particular who doesn't yet understand the word no, and that's Nora, our two-year-old. And she thinks that basically everything is a chalkboard or a notepad. Been there? Know what I'm talking about? She also makes me a little nervous when she gets close to our television with something in her hand, you know, and she likes to hit things. And it is difficult. I will admit my struggle with this. It is difficult for me to operate as if I view people that matter more than things. You know what I often do if something in our house gets messed up, if they break something? What's my first response? I mean, if you're human, you're probably doing the same thing. What do you do? Get mad. Yell at them. What are you doing? I told you. I told you a hundred times. Are you kidding me? Is that not the response? Now, man, I don't do it that emphatically, of course. <laughs> My wife's not in here. She, she can't stand up and tell you all mine. But, but isn't that the, the response? Typically, we think that things, or at least we operate and react that way, that things are more important than people. Baseball season, the regular season has just ended. The playoffs have started. But my, my favorite moment 
of the entire regular season has nothing to do with anything that happened on the field. There was, in Philadelphia, toward the end of the season, a dad with his wife and two young children, one of which was a girl who was about three years old. Somebody probably, probably seen this. And he was he had, uh, had never caught a foul ball in the ballgame before. And some of you have gone to games, and, and you've seen these people, and they are they are just violent going after these foul balls, you know. And it's like, it's a $12 baseball. It's like, you know, come on, you can go buy one at the store and, you know, and fake it, you know. But they, they go crazy over it. So this guy, imagine, he's he's probably my age, and he's been going to games since he was a kid. He's had season tickets for a while. And he, he's sitting right behind the plate about the second deck, and a foul ball comes right to him, and he reaches over, and he makes a spectacular catch. Unbelievable. Reaches over, and I'm surprised he doesn't fall in. Reaches over, grabs it, and he and he, he's excited. All the people are, yeah, you know. And, he, and what does he do? He hands it to his little girl. Y'all seen this? Have you seen this video? He hands it to his little girl, and she's kind of excited, and, you know. And, and you're thinking, oh, great, nice family moment. What does she do? She takes it and throws it back. And it's not like they're sitting, you know, about five or six rows up. They're on the front row, and there's the ledge, and there it goes. You know what was so amazing? And I've got a, I've got a little picture, I think. There it is. <clears throat> look at the look on his face. Now he's like, oh, you know, it's all happening in slow motion. And, and there she is. She's, you know, thrilled to death to be able to have the ball. And what, what do you do with the ball? Well, you throw it. Hello, you know, Dad, what do you hand it to me? You know, we throw it. But the, the video plays out. And granted, this is just a snapshot of the video. <clears throat> the very next scene in the video, the dad has his hands on his head. He's kind of, oh, what do I do? The camera is right on him. I'm telling you what, listen, I would have responded differently. I have to admit to you. He, he takes his little girl and just gives her a hug. And I, I tell you what, it's funny, but it is convicting because I would have responded differently. I would have been, I would have said, Hank, Lucy, hello. You know, that was a $12 foul ball. I mean, don't you realize how valuable it's like a gold nugget, you know? I would have responded differently, but to this guy, and I have no idea if he is a believer in Jesus Christ or not, but for him, his priorities were in line. People matter more than things. He realized in some strange way, whether he's a believer or not, that that ball didn't matter as much as his little girl did. And the look on her face was sheer terror, he said, when she threw the ball and looked at her dad, and so he just gives her a hug. Wow. I would love to be able to respond initially that way. But we'd all say, after the fact, look, I'm sorry I got so upset. You know, you just don't understand. You know, I'm sorry. But what if that was your first response? What if you lived in such a way that you realized, I am a manager, not an owner. This is just stuff. People matter more than things. Priorities would be in line. Not only priorities would be a result of this sort of living and I am a manager, not an owner, but perspective. Perspective also results in this. That we are able to live with eternity in view. You realize how many people live just for now? There are people in this room who would not admit it. They're guilty of that this week. They're guilty of that this year. And for the last however long you can remember in your life, you basically have said with your mouth, I know this isn't forever, but you have operated with your finances and with your stuff and with your attitude, and Lord knows I am guilty of it as well, as if this is all there is. And I need to take care of stuff now, and this is most important, and we fail to see the long term. 
The truth is from the Bible that this world is not our home. And though it is a world that God has created with things that we can certainly enjoy, we realize this is not our home. The Bible says we are like aliens just sort of passing through. It doesn't make what we do here less important because this is a preparation for what's to come, but this is not the end. And so if we could see, I just wonder how different things would be, if we could see the picture, the big picture of what our stuff can do, of what our finances can do on behalf of God's kingdom. I was at a conference this past week for church leaders down in Atlanta, and they they highlighted the Ministry of Compassion International. Maybe you've seen those commercials before where you can sponsor a child. And for I think it's $38 a day or a month, rather, $38 a month. You can give them all that they need, food, education, everything. And they, they present the gospel to them as well. It's not a, a secular institution that has no gospel basis. And they, I, I, there's no way I can describe this moment, but I'll do the best I can. There was a man from East Africa who was, as a young child, about seven or eight years old, brought into the Compassion Program. And somebody from America sponsored him. And uh, they had, you know, communicated here and there, whatever, and the, um, the, the, the East African man uh, was, was talking about <clears throat> what a difference that made in his life. He is now uh, in Chicago going to the Moody Bible Institute to then go back to his home country to be a preacher and to, to help other people. He, this guy, is now sponsoring children through the compassion program himself. He's sort of paying back what was given to him. The most amazing part of this, as he was being interviewed, they said, have you ever met your sponsor? Have you ever met the, the guy from America that, that sponsored you at, you know, at however $38 a month? And he said, no. And they said, well, how would you like to meet him? And they bring this guy out on stage who couldn't have been a, the, the, the African man was probably 24, 25. This other guy couldn't have been any more than 38 or 39 years old, not a big disparity in age. So he was fairly young when he began to sponsor this guy. And I'm telling you, I, again, I cannot describe it. Words cannot even put it. This guy from Africa literally collapsed. And as he got up, it was as if he was hugging Jesus Christ. I'm not lying to you. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that Jesus was reincarnated as this guy. Don't, don't read any theology until but you understand this was the guy who Jesus used to, to radically change this man's life. Imagine if we had the perspective that what our stuff can do is somehow going to impact eternity. Imagine the moments we may have both here on earth and then one day in eternity. That moment would have happened sometime. I'm thankful I got to see it, but one day in heaven, that moment would have happened. First John chapter 2. Verse 15, it talks about perspective. When John says this, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. Because everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And in verse 17, and the world with its lust and all the stuff is what? Passing away. But the one who does God's will remains forever, living in light of eternity. The World Hunger Fund that we are highlighting today, you've seen in your bulletin, the food drive, all those things do not miss the eternal possibilities, the eternal impact that that can have. God has put you in America with your resources for a reason, and it's not 
so I can enjoy all my stuff. You never know what God might do if we live in light of eternity. The third thing is this, compassion. Compassion. These people in the book of Acts had compassion, and it came from all the people to all of the people. You realize not all those people were the same? They were all Jewish in their religion and converted to Christianity, but they spoke different languages. They were from different countries. They probably looked a little different. They probably had different customs based upon where they were now living. Those people, though, as a result of what God had done in their lives and living according to the principle, they were managers, not owners, but they had compassion. And not only just compassion, but they did something about it, imitating Jesus in that. In James chapter 2, verse 15, it says, If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? You ever done that? Yeah, I'm praying for you. Yeah, that's tough. You know what? Let me pray for you. Now, I'm not saying that I've never done it. Because I do it all the time. I'm the pastor, for crying out loud. I tell people I'm praying for them all the time. You with me? But the Bible makes it clear. You know what? If somebody is in need and you have the resources, the means to meet the need, and you tell them, hey, good luck, what good is it? You don't have to get mad at me. James said it. Jesus brought it. He wrote it. First John chapter 3 highlights this again. Understand, these were members of the early church. They went on to write this stuff. They didn't just do it in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4. This is how they lived. This is the principles they lived by. Verse 16 of 1 John 3, this is how we have come to know love. He, Jesus, laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in needs, but, but in need, but shuts off his compassion from him, how can God's love reside in him? Well, that's some strong stuff, is it not? And you can see how it flies in the face of everything that we've been taught to believe, just aside from Jesus Christ. It's mine, and I've earned it, and so on. Boy, compassion moves us to do something. Another is spontaneity. Spontaneity. These activities of selling and giving and so on, they were voluntary. Again, as I told you, this was not ordered by the church. These people were not under compulsion to do this. This was voluntary. This was spontaneous. They had aligned themselves with God's principles, and as a result, they were just, you know what? Hey, there's a need. Let's meet it. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be incredible if you had some needy person fund, so to speak, you carried around with you, saw something need, you just met it. You didn't ask any questions. You weren't worried about it. You just met needs. These people sold and donated the proceeds. They, they were prompted by God, and they just met it. They didn't wait for somebody else to do it or to tell them to do it. Imagine having the freedom to do that. If you viewed yourself as a manager, not an owner, total freedom to be spontaneous. Total freedom just to meet needs however you see them. For anybody that comes in your path, creativity is another, along with spontaneity. Selling their land and houses wasn't exactly the Jewish practice. God's not against ownership of possession. He's not against it. In fact, he encourages that you be industrious and do something with your life. But they got creative. They said, you know what, if we're not the owners of all this stuff, then, hey, let's be creative with how we use it. Uh, I'm thankful that we have lots of people here, uh, and, it's, and, and, and you'll see in the bulletin, uh, there will be events that will come up that somebody will host. They're getting creative. How can we reach our people? How can we help our people with what we have? Another result is generosity. Over and above the minimum. 
There's a passage in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 8, we're just going to read a couple of verses here. Where Paul is talking to the Corinthians and challenging them with the model of another people. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 8, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. That doesn't even make any sense to me. Out of their deep poverty, that overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. Most of the time we think, well, when I get enough, I'll be generous. Out of their deep poverty. I testify that on their own, according to their ability and beyond their ability, generosity, they begged us insistently for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints and not as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves especially to the Lord, then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should complete this grace to you. Now, as you, talking to the Corinthians, excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this grace, the grace of giving, generosity. I'm not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. There is something about the way we hold on to our stuff that tests our heart and reveals the love that we truly have for God and other people. And I wish you could understand that when I stand here today to tell you this, my prayer has been all week long, God, you have got to break me of all this stuff. God, I am not there. Lord, I'm going to tell these people something that I am still in the process of dealing with. Understand that. And I struggle just like you with generosity. I want to be generous. But it's sort of out there. One day when I do this, one day when I make this amount of money, one day when I whatever. They gave out of their extreme poverty. Generosity characterized them. As a result of generosity, sacrifice can then be there. These people that sold their houses and so on, they gave up their future. They sacrificed. But you know what? It was worth it. Because they realized they were not an owner, but a manager. It will cost you something to be generous. It will cost you something. And then finally, contentment. You say, well, okay, what's in it for me? Here you go. Contentment. You realize that I think the writer of Ecclesiastes is true. The more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more you have, the more you have to lose. Not against having stuff. Hey, look, I'm telling you, I am, I am thankful, and I don't say this to patronize. I'm thankful that God has blessed so many of us with incredible resources, wealth beyond what we can imagine. Half the world lives on $2 a day. Two American dollars a day, half the world. We consume well over half the world's resources and have not close to half the world's population in our country. We are a blessed nation. I'm not against stuff. But how many of us have accumulated stuff and still don't have any contentment? There's no peace. I just want more. I just got to keep up. I just got to continue to go there. There's something about contentment and simplicity. When we went to Disney World back in August, we we stayed in a, in a place that had a washing machine there, and we were there for seven nights, and so it was helpful for us to have that. And so I wore, okay, I wore two different shirts the whole time I was there. I had a red one and I had a yellow one. 
Goes like, you know, a little polo golf shirt kind of deal. And so in every picture, if you see any pictures of us from Disney World, I'm going to be in a red shirt or a yellow shirt. That's it. That's how I knew I was at Disney World. Red shirt, yellow shirt. And I just wore them every other day. We went to the park six days in a row. So it was like, you know, Saturday, Monday, Wednesday, you know, whatever. I was in red, and the other days I was in yellow, you know. I, I tell you this. I probably wouldn't have done that if I were here in Murray. Why? Because I'd be worried about, why is he wearing the same shirts over and over again? What if I wouldn't? Well, no, seriously, all right? Just follow my brain if you can for a second. What if I wore the same suit, shirt, and tie every Sunday? Somebody's going to pick up on it and say, do you not have anything else? You might not say that, but you're thinking, you know, do we need to buy a new suit? I mean, they should wear the same thing over and over again. Good grief, you know? It was so freeing to be at Disney World and not care what any, anybody thought. I didn't know anybody down there. I didn't care. I just washed one shirt, wore the next one the next day, and then just flipped them all over. His simplicity was amazing. And I came back. Okay, here's what I did. I came back thinking, I'm going to do that at home. <laughs> I didn't do any of that at home. I mean, it's still as complicated as I've ever been. Why? Because my pride gets in the way, and I'm not content, and I've got something image to try to portray. And I wear a different suit every Sunday. You realize that? I haven't worn this tie yet at Elm Grove. Over a year. Well, what am I worried about? You know, I mean, I just, just let's be honest, but are we not all the same? Good grief. Are we not all the same? How many of you have closets full of stuff and they're in boxes in the attic in the basement, places you haven't seen since the last time you moved or when you moved in and all that? And they got dust three inches thick on them, but you know what? You got that stuff and we don't even use it. I mean, I'm the same way. And we're not content. Contentment, Paul said in Philippians chapter 4. An incredible little passage of scripture that he wrote with a familiar verse to many of us. And he says in verse 10 of chapter 4, he said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have renewed your care for me. He's talking to the Philippians that they actually gave him stuff. You were, in fact, concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need. This is incredible. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And you say, well, Paul must have been really close to Jesus. I mean, you know, obviously he's an apostle, wrote half the New Testament. Okay, it's different for him. I know both how to have a little, and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. And the next verse is the one we all know. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. He had learned the secret of contentment, and it is to rely on Jesus Christ to live life his way. And Paul says, look, I've been in need and I've had lots of stuff. I've been hungry and I've been well fed. I've been free and I've been in prison. Wrote this from prison. I have learned the secret of contentment. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He is who I'll live my life by. This freed them up. Pride and competition were eliminated. There was no feeling like they were falling behind, like they had to keep up. And so for us today, can you honestly say and believe and buy into, I am a manager, not an owner. It will change your life. I am a manager, not an owner. You can either decide. I can either decide that I will operate according to this principle or I have it proven to me when I die. One of the two. You cannot take it with you. Proving, not a cliche, but proving you're not the owner. 
I'm not going to take any of my stuff with me. This tie included. I like this tie. It's brand new. I'm going to take nothing with me, proving I'm not the owner. I'm the manager. Living like this in America, as you can well imagine, is completely countercultural. Does not mean you can't be a great American. Doesn't mean that you can't be industrious. It just means you realize my stuff's not my stuff. It's God's stuff. And how does he want me to do with my stuff that he's given me that's really not my stuff, but it is? How? Money to operate. In all areas of your life, consider this. In your money, in your possessions, in your time, with your parenting, understand that everything you see and have is on loan from God. He is the owner. We are the managers. Maybe you begin each day with a declaration that, God, you are the owner. I am the manager. God, how do you want me to handle my time, my stuff, my money, all of that today, this week? And maybe you'd start even today at lunch. Maybe by yourself or with your spouse and your family, and you'd simply begin to reorder your life around this one principle. That the time that you've been given, that the resources, the money, the stuff, the, the children that are in your life, that you realize, you know what, God, I'm not the owner. You are. God, I'm the manager. Maybe you'd feel that kind of thinking in your family, your children, your kids, your grandkids. And it goes without saying, but a church that's full of individuals who apply this principle will be drastically different. I I don't believe that we'll talk about a whole series on money. I don't believe that if we truly live according to the Scriptures... I don't have to talk a whole lot about what we do with our money. I'm not going to have to get up here and badger you and please give to the church. I I just, I don't believe in that. Because until we get this principle nailed down, what good is it? Until we get this idea nailed down, we'll just talk about the things we want to do instead of being able to do them. And so I, I've said before, I firmly believe the Lord will take care of our family. So if I ever talk to you about money, it's not because we're hurting and please give because I don't know our kids can't eat and all that kind of stuff. That's not even the point. But I know what we're missing. I know what I'm missing by not ordering my life in this way and viewing God as the owner. But the truth is, we have to realize it's not just about what we do and how we act here at church. Because The Bible makes it clear that we are the church. So if a biblical church is full of sacrificial love, viewing God as the owner and us as the managers, it carries with us wherever we go. As we think about sacrificial love, the idea that this church was willing to sacrifice anything, obviously, it points to the ultimate example of sacrificial love, and that is Jesus Christ, who Paul said gave his very life for us. Complete generosity, total sacrifice, costing him everything. Those who repent and believe, the Bible says, receive the promise of eternal life from Jesus and forgiveness. And so before you begin to realign your life with a certain principle, realign your life with Jesus Christ. Invite him to be in charge, to be the owner of your life, and give up control. I promise you this, great joy Certain struggle, but great joy awaits and the promise of eternal life and things we cannot imagine. And so maybe today that would be your decision, that you would give your life completely to Jesus, 
maybe for the very first time, or maybe just re-up and say, you know what, I have not been living it. Let's pray. Lord, may it be you first, and then us. May we see ourselves as the managers, not the owners. God, we want to be completely devoted to you, so change us and help us. We pray in Jesus' name.